0: Look with me, please, in Jude in verse three. And I do want to, before we even begin our study of this, continuing in this passage this evening, um, there there are three, and we're going to look at this again in a moment. But there are three implications within this verse that we are we have we have paused it, this verse to look into, and we looked on our last time together. The first of these and that is that we are to personally engage the faith, and that's implied by the word earnestly. And we dug into that and delved into that truth and unpacked that in our last time together to help you to see that. It's not just something I'm saying. It, it's actually implied within the, the text and what is being stated. The second uh, matter we are going to look into this evening is that we are to personally defend the faith by the, implied by the word contend, and we're going to look more so into that as well. And then the third is that we are personally acknowledged the exclusivity of the faith, as Jude wrote, once delivered unto the saints. And so there, this faith is exclusive. It's not, um, it's not subjective by any means or in any nature. And so it is an exclusive faith. And so that is important for us to recognize. And I say all that before we begin to make this point. Um, I I am attempting, of course, to go through the text as it's laid out for us. And some of these things should be already understood. And what I mean by that is this, that when Jude wrote this letter, uh, they had no, absolutely no misunderstanding or misconception concerning the faith. They knew exactly what Jude was speaking of. Now, today, and we're going to get into this in the future, that's why I'm dealing with it right now. I'm not literally going to deal with this right now, but I'm introducing it to explain to you so you're not left behind, so to speak, as we progress in the study even this evening. But when we consider the faith, today it's been, uh, there are fundamentals of the faith that we refer to, or t- uh, which are also referred to. There are, are creeds and there are uh, uh, even catechisms that teach concerning the faith. We were discussing some of these things last night in our theology class, uh, the matter of this. And, and so, all that being said, there have, there's been tremendous effort put forth throughout time in church history for the faith to be somewhat uh, categorized or somewhat defined, if you will. Um, and, and so when we look at the, the statement or the implication of the exclusivity of the faith, when Jude says, which was the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints, the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints, we see that it is an exclusive faith and meaning again there's no subjectivity uh permitted within the statement uh, of one's own uh interpretation or understanding and and this would have been well understood by the reader to whom Jude had written the epistle and today because of how this has been defined if you will or how it's been articulated or how it's been categorized which I'm not saying is a bad thing at all in a sense but but because of this I think that there are questions concerning what is the faith. And so we are going to look into this as we progress in our study. That's not for this evening because we're going through the text, but yet we will come to this, and I just want to explain that to you. And and I want to approach that with an understanding of, though we will consider the tenets of the faith or the fundamentals, as it's been referred to, of the faith, yet we need to recognize what the faith actually is as explained or declared by Jude in this text, And and therefore, we will have a greater understanding of that in which we are to engage, that in which we are to defend. And so, because you would ask probably, how am I to engage in the faith if I don't understand what the faith is, by definition? Or how am I to defend the faith if I don't understand what the faith is, by definition? But then I'm going to say to you, the faith is not merely uh, four or five components. The faith is so much more than that alone. But yet, the faith has been somewhat, again, articulated, if you will, For the sake of understanding and teaching, if if I may, that we would have an ability to grasp what is being stated. And so we're going to look into these things in the future, whether it be next week or in the weeks to come. We're going to ask when we come to this third point, that we are to personally acknowledge the exclusivity of the faith as it is implied in this text when Jude says, contend for the faith, the faith, definite article, the faith, which was once... And once means once and for all, all time, it was delivered unto the saints. And so we're going to look and answer the question, what is the faith, when we come to that point. But we're not there yet. And so I wanted to go ahead and lay that out for you because I do not want you to think that we're just going to skirt through this and not actually deal with what the faith is. But I also want to somewhat warn you to to not limit your understanding of what the faith is by just simply four or five points that we would call the fundamentals or the tenets of the faith. And in one sense of the word, and we'll look into this, I'm sure, as well, what we might refer to, what I like to refer to as the non-negotiables, if you will. Because these are things that are non-negotiable. These are absolutes, and and this is the foundation of our absolute belief in Christ and all he has said and done. And so that being said, uh, tonight we're going to move forward into the second of these implied statements, uh, actual statements, but yet the implications that are made in the statement. So let's read Jude verse 3 together this evening. Oh, and and just... Quick note, before we do, uh, if, you did not, if you've not followed along or not been here for this study, I encourage you to go back and begin in Jude. And I encourage you especially to go back to last week, because it is very important in relation to what we are dealing with at this point in time. So, Jude verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So, in our last study, we began to examine the crux of this epistle in which Jude wrote, due to his awareness of the present danger for believers regarding the faith. And as we discovered in our last study, Jude emphasized an urgency when he stated, when he said, it was needful for me to write unto you. Now, first of all, he says, beloved, and let's just review this quickly. He says, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. Now, here again, Jude is saying, I, I desire to write unto you of this common salvation. And I do believe, and, and there's some, there's different schools of thoughts concerning what Jude is saying here, but I do believe that is stating that he desired to write concerning the common salvation in the terms of that salvation which has been experienced by all of those who are redeemed that brings us into unity together as a body because of our unity with God the Father through Jesus Christ and so we have a unity as, as his body. And I believe that Judah is saying, I wanted to write on this such as I gave examples of Paul's writing when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and Colossus and Philippi. And Paul wrote of, of these deep truths of Christ and Galatians even, even though he's rebuking someone and instructing, but yet still he wrote of these deep truths of Christ and the exclusivity of Christ himself. And I believe that Jude is saying, oh, I really desire to write unto you concerning these matters. But then he makes a statement He says, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And so he says, beloved, and of course this is not just an introductory statement, but rather it is that he is identifying those who are part of this common salvation and those in whom the faith has been given, of course. But yet we discovered that Jude emphasized an urgency when he stated it was needful. Notice the urgency here. This is necessary, Jude is saying. It is is imperative that I write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. Now, I previously pointed out that the implications made within Jude's thesis statement in verse 3 are foundational to not only the purpose of the epistle, but these implications are foundational to the purpose of the existence of the church. So Jude, remember, even Paul himself stated that the church... It really makes up the pillars of truth. Do you recall that? And so the church, truth comes through the church because God has chosen to reveal truth through His Word and the church is to be committed to the Word and therefore committed to the truth. And the church stands as a a light and beacon of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all that entails, and that is what we are called and commanded to be. And so Paul, uh, Jude's, uh, Jude's uh, exhortation here is foundational to the very purpose and existence of the church. You say, well, isn't the church, doesn't the church exist to bring glory to God? Well, of course it does. But how does God receive glory through His church? Well, uh, one of the ways, obviously, is that we stand in the truth, upon the truth, declare the truth, proclaim the truth. We are His light, we are His salt in a world that is in spiritual death and darkness. And so we must understand this truth as we work through here and see what Jude is stating when he says it was needful, it was necessary that you contend for the faith. The importance of this verse is realized in these three implications, as I've mentioned already, and that believers are first to personally engage the faith when he says earnestly. That is implied here. Because earnestly is, is actually and earnestly contend is really as we looked at this this is a a a, a, a actually a, a phrase that, that is translated into this adverb and this verb, earnestly contend, but it actually is from the Greek meaning to struggle, if you will. And, and we're going to look tonight and see again how that, the root word from which this is derived is that word of uh, agone, from which we as well derive our word agony. And so he's talking about a struggling or a strife that is present. And then second, we are to personally defend the faith as implied by the word contend. And then personally, third, acknowledge the exclusivity of the faith as implied by the faith once delivered unto the saints. And so I asked you in our last study, what are we to glean from Jude's exhortation then? And part of verse, or the second part of the, verse 3 says, It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And last, our last study, looking at believers must personally engage the faith. And the use of the adverb earnestly in the text help us, helps us to better understand the meaning of the verb contend which follows. And again, the verb contend means to struggle for. And the implication signified in the use of the phrase earnestly contend, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's a verb phrase in reality, is one of personal engagement, personal involvement, and personal struggle. For, and for much too long, many within the church, as I've stated, have become passive concerning the matter of engaging the faith and have attempted to use the word faith as an answer to questions concerning the faith rather than actually defending the faith or giving actual answers. And this is resulting from one's inability to explain, defend, and propagate the faith. So if there is ignorance on those who are called to defend the faith, then many times we have seen in recent history that the church, rather than actually engaging concerning the faith, such as Peter states, in, in which is the verse which we take obviously to the, the strongest of verses in relation to defending uh, the faith or apologetics as we would refer to it today, and that is in Peter's epistle when Peter said that we are to be ready... To answer to any man or every man that asketh reason of the hope that is within us. And so here Peter is saying we are to give answer. Now, last night we were actually discussing some of these things in our theology class, so if you were there, bear with me, we'll move on, but just bear with me, and it won't do you any harm to hear it again anyway. But the reality of the matter is that we are to engage in the faith, personally engaging in the faith. And what has happened is because there are those who are not prepared to answer and prepared to give answer, faith is used as an excuse. In other words, people will make statements such as this when asked questions that they don't feel like they can answer. Well, I just believe this, or I believe the Bible says about that, or I believe. And they're not answering the question. And notice what Peter says Peter does not say that we persuade men or that we convince men of the truth. He says we are to be ready to give answer to every man. The, to give answer of the reason of the hope that is within us to every man that asketh, and so Peter doesn't say, "Oh, your responsibility is to persuade them and convince them." We know the Spirit of God must do that, but that does not negate our responsibility as believers to be rooted and grounded and able to answer the questions in a meaningful manner. And I said to you on last week, briefly, I don't want to belabor this, but I've said to you last or last in our last study that. What's happened today within the church, and it's very sad that this has happened, is that when questions are, are asked, answers are, uh, uh, questions are avoided, if you will, or they are dismissed, or they are, or they are answered in a, in a meaningless manner, not truly being answered at all. And then those who want to know the answers, where do they go? They go to find out the answer. So then they turn to a world, and this is what you need to understand, they turn to a world that is well-equipped and well-prepared to give answers. Though they are false answers and false premises, yet they are prepared and ready to give answer. What has happened to the church? We are to personally engage the faith, to be involved personal investment concerning the faith. And so, I explained to you that we cannot engage the culture until we have personally engaged the faith. Today, many people would say that, oh, well, we just need to engage the culture. But then the question is, with what message? What are you engaging a culture with if you can't answer questions yourself concerning what you even claim to believe? What you claim to to defend? And I gave you this example in our last time together, 2 Samuel 18, 19 through 32, and we're not going to read all this again. But it tells of... Ahimeas, who wanted to carry tidings or news to the king, to David, that is. And so Ahimeaz ran to King David, yet he had no answer to the question of David concerning his son Absalom, David's son Absalom. And Joab, if you recall, had told Ahimeas, no, you don't run, you don't have a message today, I'm sending um, Cushai to take the message to, to David. And so Cushai and, and, and Joab and others were there, of course, conversing, and, and Ahimeas observed this as the text goes on to tell us, but yet he says, "I really want to go," and Joab says, "No," and he says, "Please let me run." And so Joab finally says, "Okay, Ahimeas, you go ahead and run." So Ahimeas overtakes Cushai in the in the journey to David. He reaches David, and David asks a question and says, "So what about my son Absalom?" And all he can say is, "All, all Ahimeas could say is, your enemies are dead.'" And then he says, well, I saw that there was a, a struggle taking place. There was conversation going on. But Ahimeaz goes on to explain, I really don't know what that was about. And so David says, you stand over here. <laughs> and puts him to the side. Then Cushai comes. And when Cushai arrives, he says, what about my son De- or Absalom? And Cushai says, all of your enemies are dead. And he goes, oh, your enemies are as your son is. Which is saying Absalom as well is dead. And so the point being this. Ahimeas was very fervent and zealous, and he desired to go. He had a passion to run, and I don't mean that in the sense of exercise. I mean, he wanted to go to the king. He wanted to have an important part in in carrying tidings to the king. He wanted to be able to go and explain and, and run and say, I'm the messenger that's sent by Joab to give you tidings and message. But yet, he gets to the king, and he has no message. When the question is asked, what about my son? He says, I don't know. And yet, then whenever Cushai comes, he has the message concerning Absalom and his death and is able to explain to David what's really happening. And I would say to you this, I've said this for many, for many years, that zeal must be tempered with wisdom. And there are many who are very zealous about going out. Many people want to go save the world, so to speak, or change the world for Christ. Do You understand what I'm saying? But if they're not discipled and engaged in the faith themselves then they're like Ahemias, who's going out with partial truth and, and, and not understanding the message and not able to answer the questions when asked and only able to deliver this minuscule part of the entirety of the whole. And what's more is that Ahemias was not even a- able to answer the true question on David's mind and heart, which was about Absalom. Even though he could say, oh, your enemies are dead, he really could not speak concerning Absalom. So it's important that we understand that many today desire to stand up for the faith and yet find themselves in this predicament. They are willing to fight, yet they fail to possess an understanding of the message they are even to defend. And so last week, I, or last study, I concluded that it is imperative that the church return to a life dedicated to engaging the faith so that it might be prepared to engage the culture. Look, if we're going to go into the world with the gospel, we need to understand the gospel, and I mean really understand the gospel, and also understand a manner in which we can redemptively answer the questions that are asked. So as we progress in our study concerning this thesis statement of Jude's epistle here in verse 3, we continue by considering the second of the three implied truths within this verse. Having already addressed the first of these three implications, believers must personally engage the faith, now we're going to begin to look at believers must personally defend the faith. And this truth or charge to all believers is implied within this word contend, as I mentioned. And Jude stated this in verse 3 when he said, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. Personally engaging the faith, personally defending the faith. Now this verb contend has seemingly been greatly misunderstood or, or... at best, or misrepresented and mistaught, at worst, within the church. In other words, this verb, contend, has been associated only with fighting, which is often referenced only in an aggressive context. And the Greek root word from which the this word, contend, is translated, is the word agon, as I mentioned a few moments ago. And while this word agon means struggle or fight. It is the word again from which our English word agony is derived. And so this has again this personal investment, this personal involvement, and, and it is this struggle or this fight or this this agone, this agony that is present. And the same word, just to show you how this is translated in scripture, is translated in, in various ways throughout the New Testament. And this fact is important. So that in our understanding of the depths of the meaning or weight of the meaning of Jude's exhortation to contend and as we look at this word and what it actually means. The word agōn is translated in these different manners. First of all, agony in Luke 22:24, fight in John 18:36, striveth in 1 Corinthians 9:25. Conflict, in Philippians one thirty, Laboring, Colossians 4.12. Subdued, Hebrews 11.33. And race, Hebrews twelve one. Now this is interesting that it's translated in all these different English words uh, throughout Scripture. It's the same Greek word. And and now different Greek, Greek words can have different meanings, like English word can have different meanings. But understand the importance of this root word, agon, as it is translated throughout Scripture and notice, again, in Luke twenty-two, twenty-four, 24 it has to do with agony, which that's personal, is it not? And then fight. So there you have that, that, that aggressive part of this. Eight, John 18-36, striveth. Striveth is, again, it's not fighting necessarily, but it's also a personal engagement and involvement and, and effort. And then you have conflict. It's in relation to conflict. Laboring, how about this one? It has to do with personal work, if you will, and involvement in that sense. Subdued, that's interesting, And in that to subdued, of course, is to be brought under the power of, or the instruction of, or what have you, and, and in submission to, and then race, Hebrews 12, 1. Let us run the race that is set before us. And so, from this use of a root word of agom, from which the phrase earnestly contend was translated, and its various uses as translated throughout the New Testament writings. We can conclude that Jude's exhortation to earnestly contend is much more than simply a general call to arms, as many would view it, in an aggressive sense alone, but it also includes a personal agonizing, a personal struggle, personal laboring in the faith. By the way, again, when we think of Scripture, what Paul says to Timothy when he told Timothy to um, study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. But how does that come about? Studying, and again, the word study there does not mean sit down with a pen, pencil, and paper and just go through Scripture and write notes. It means to be diligent, to diligently apply yourself. Isn't it interesting? It is so interesting to me how so many people view Scripture as though it's an accessory for their lives. Oh, I'm going to apply Scripture to my life. Scripture never tells us to do that. But we are commanded to apply ourselves to Scripture, to apply our lives to Scripture. So, when you consider the truth of what's being stated in Paul's uh, letter to Timothy, when he says, study to show thyself approved unto God, he is saying that you are to diligently apply yourself to Scripture, which is approving unto God, a workman that need a workman, one who labors, that needs to not have shame, because he is able to rightly divide the truth. And so we are to diligently apply ourselves to God's truth. Again, we get things so turned around today, so it has seemed or been that way for some time, and the tendency of man is always to do this. But it, it would appear to me that we have come to a place in history in which what is taken at place at this present time is that everyone, because of the way we have been taught, the way we have been instructed or lack thereof, the way that we have been conditioned by all that goes on, whether it be. Social media, and this is not a rant against social media, okay? But whether it be social media, the news broadcast, whatever it is, where we get, we get tidbits of information so rapidly thrown to us that it's as though we catch these glimpses of things that are happening, if you will, and yet have very little investment involvement in the truth and the root of what's actually taking place. And when it comes to scripture, this is definitely what has taken place. Because even with the mentality of apply this truth to your life, well, again, one of the fundamental problems with that statement—and I wrote about this—if you've read the uh, book, you, you understand that that one of the fundamental or foundational problems with this is when you start to apply scripture to you, you become central, not scripture. Scripture is no longer central; you are central. So everything's about surrounding. You're, you're in the center of all this, and you're just taking and applying things to your life, and those are the tidbits of information. But when you're applying yourself to the truth, it's all the truth, and it's all of you being applied. And so you have to diligently study, diligently commit yourself to the Word of God that you might understand and that you might be able to go in the faith and have understanding, of course, and, and spiritual discernment. And so when we, when we understand the use of this Word, We need to recognize that if if we are to personally defend the faith, it is necessary, it is imperative that we personally engage in the faith. And to do either of these previously mentioned implications within this exhortation provided by Jude, it requires personal investment and personal interest in the faith itself. Now, there's a question which needs to be answered. Does contending for the faith include fighting for the faith? And the answer to that is, of course it does. Of course, this has to do with fighting, if you will. However, this word contend does not solely mean fighting alone. And again, there's a lot of people that are very zealous. And and there's people who love a fight. There are people who love contention. There are people who love to be in in debate and argument. And I have to be honest with you, there's a part of me, especially when I was younger, that thrived in that and really enjoyed that. And it's not that I still don't. I try to to guard myself somewhat from that to some degree, but yet the reality is people are made up differently, of course, and then there are those who want to be obstinate, though, and that's different than loving a debate or loving engaging in debate or discussion. I believe if we are critically thinking people, which we should be, then we should enjoy debate and argument and discussion. When I say argument, I don't mean nasty and bad attitudes. I'm talking about arguments themselves, debates, discussing truth, and, and, and seeking to, to grow Understanding and so on and so forth. So, those are things that should be appealing to anyone who is is critically thinking. But yet, that's different than wanting just to be obstinate, than wanting just to be a a thorn in everybody's side. Someone who just wants to stand out and always be a a point of contention in that respect. And so, this, this word contend does not solely mean fighting alone. The implication, again, is that one is personally involved, invested in therefore for which they fight. Uh, I remember, and I shared this with you months back now, I guess, but I remember shortly after the recent events with Russia invading uh, the Ukraine, I watched a news broadcast in which it was uh, reported that several Russian, sh- Russian soldiers were reporting their desire to return to Russia. I've even heard something recently about that very thing, even in the last week or so while Ukrainians were lining up to join the Ukrainian forces in defense of their homeland. And the difference between these two accounts is the personal interest and personal investment of the people of Ukraine contrasted with the Russian soldiers who had no personal interest or investment or personal desire to be involved in this invasion apart from their duty of being a soldier. This is, what I'm, this is my job. This is what I'm committed to being, therefore I must do this. Now- one thing to fight because it's a felt responsibility or duty. While it is a completely different thing to fight or defend something because you are personally invested and engaged in the cause for which you fight. And if you are personally engaged in the cause for which you fight and you are personally invested, then it's not just I must do this. It's a desire to stand in defense. It is a desire to to agonize it is a desire to labor it is a a a desire and a pleasure even to suffer for the cause if you're truly invested and committed to this think of it like this with me if you will we read stories of those who were martyred for the faith and who did so willingly would not recant would not deny the lord jesus christ nor the faith Do you think that was a sense of duty? Do you think that was simply a sense of, well, this is what a good Christian should do? Do you think that's really what these people were thinking? Do you think they were sitting there going, well, what's everyone else going to think about me if I don't do this? Do you really think that's what they were thinking? No. There was even in death joy and identity in Christ because they were invested and committed to the cause of Christ. If you recall with me through our study of Paul's... So as we examine Paul's command for the church at Ephesus to stand in the position which God had provided them in Jesus Christ. Paul's, Paul commanded the Ephesian believers, just a quick review here, in Ephesians chapter 6, he commanded them to stand or maintain their position because standing is that. It's maintaining the position that's already provided. And that, that position, of course, was in Ephesians 1 through 3 specifically. And Paul now in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is explaining that practicality and practical truth of living out the position as we've Looked into in great depth and detail in our study of Ephesians, so he said, "Stand or maintain the position in God's provision of His truth concerning this armor." He said to stand and maintain the position in God's provision of His righteousness. He said to stand and maintain the position in God's provision of His gospel of peace. He said to stand and maintain the position in God's provision of faith. He said to stand and maintain the position in God's provision of salvation, and then to stand and maintain the position in God's provision of the Scriptures or of His Word. And so, forsake of our study of contending for the faith, who charged his reader, I want to refer once again to Paul's command to stand or maintain the position concerning the faith, as Paul explained it in Ephesians chapter 6, as God has provided us this position in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 6.16, Paul wrote, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, again, within this command, Paul reminds us that it is faith which is our greatest defense against the attacks of the enemy. Now, this is an interesting statement because he says, above all, taking the shield of faith, after everything he's already stated, he's already spoken of God's truth, righteousness, and the gospel of peace, and then he gets to faith, number four. And then he gets to salvation and then the scriptures in this armor in which he lists. Let me just mention this again in case you weren't with us or you're not remembering this truth. In Romans 13, I believe it is, Paul explains to us that this armor is not an additional provision of, or additional provision to Jesus Christ, but rather this armor is Jesus Christ. It is God's provision for us in Christ. And if you recall that, it's different aspects of who God has made Jesus to be on our behalf. And we see that reality in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 29, 30, 31. And we also see this truth Uh, as explained in Romans chapter 13, whenever Paul says that we are to put on the armor of light, and then what does he say? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saying put on the armor of light and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus Christ is the armor of light. And so in Ephesians 6, Paul is saying the same thing again. He is saying that we are to put on the whole armor of God, but these are not additional provisions. This is God's provision for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when he speaks, of the faith here, he says, above all, taking the shield of faith. Now, above all, he's saying above everything else, take the shield of faith. Well, what does this mean exactly, and why does he state it in such a manner? Well, first of all, let us understand that he says, he goes on to explain, for it is with the shield of faith that we are able to quench, this faith is able to quench So as the enemy would light, if you will, with something that was combustible, obviously, some form of fuel, whether it be straw, hay, whatever it might be, he would fire the darts, of course, and in the, the analogy is given here, in which those darts would land, and then of course they would not only potentially kill someone as it struck them or injure or maim them, but even if it went into uh the midst of the other the other army or soldiers or in, if they were attacking a a a, a kingdom a fortress a, a city, what have you, then it could catch fire to other other areas that are all about them, and so the, the the shield of faith was able to quench the fiery darts of the, the wicked, which is referencing of course that this shield was um, sufficient, and it was prepared in such a manner that if it were struck by these fiery darts, that they would be quenched. They would just be put out. They wasn't able to to burn or do any damage whatsoever as though the enemy intended had intended for it to do. And so when he says, above all, taking the shield of faith, it's interesting because the shield of faith is the means by which the attacks of the enemy are quenched, in which they are, are made to be irrelevant. Now, understand that the faith is the provision that has been given by God as a means to conquer the attacks or overcome the attacks of the enemy. But at the same time, what's interesting here is when we stop and realize it is the very faith that is under attack by or or of the enemy. The enemy is attacked. So the enemy is attacking what? The faith. And yet it is that very faith that is the means of overcoming the attack against the faith itself. That's an interesting understanding of this truth because we then begin to realize that this faith is all-sufficient. No matter what is hurled at it, it is an all-sufficient provision and means by which we are made to be conquerors in Christ. Now, that being said, why would we not, above all, take this provision and make certain that we are prepared and we are skilled in using the provision that is the means by which the attacks are made to be irrelevant. In other words, let me say this to you. If you are rooted and grounded in the faith, it doesn't matter what attacks are hurled at the faith because you have an understanding of the sufficiency of the faith and the truth of the faith and the faith is not something that you are casually throwing around just to claim i've got faith look at this no it's something you are invested in and you are trusting in as a matter of fact if you think about what paul's analogy is he gives in ephesians 6 This was a full-size shield. This was not some little round shield that you might imagine. This shield would have been that of a full-size shield. And whenever the arrows or the darts started to be flying in that direction, you know what the soldiers would do? They 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 would plant the shield and get behind the shield, hunker down behind the shield... And they were trusting, hear me please, because this has everything to do with where we're getting to in the exclusivity of the faith. It had, they were absolutely trusting without any question that this shield was sufficient to thwart any attack that was coming their way. They weren't hiding behind a shield going, man, I hope this thing stands up, I hope this is going to last But understand, they were invested in this. Not only invested in the sense of, I've got my shield. No, they knew that this shield was proven trustworthy. It was proven in battle. It was proven to stand against the attacks. It was proven to quench the darts that were on fire coming. Are you following this? They were invested in this shield. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Above everything else, recognizing that the faith in itself is sufficient. The question is not, is the faith sufficient? The question is, are we trusting the sufficiency of the faith? And do we understand it's proven throughout history and time? And have we been engaged in a war ourselves enough to recognize, acknowledge, and understand the sufficiency of the faith? Again, the soldiers were totally entrusting their entire well-being to the sufficiency of the shield behind which they stood. So, no matter what's hurled, look, it doesn't matter to me, and I'm not. But the answers—it's not because I give an answer and go, "Well, I just believe this. I just believe this." No, that's not an answer. It doesn't matter what attacks come against the faith reality is I have absolute, absolute confidence, absolute trust in the sufficiency of the faith that's been handed down to us. That's not just some mere statement I'm making. I'm saying to you, my whole, not only physical existence, but hear me, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, because remember, faith is not in addition to Jesus. This is Hebrews 12 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter, the finisher of faith, of faith. This is not addition to Jesus. This is all about Jesus. And the point is, not only is my physical existence dependent upon He who has given me life, but my whole eternal existence is totally dependent upon He who has given me spiritual and eternal life. And so, when we look at the faith, and we're going to look more into this, and I'm, I'm really not finished even with this yet, but let me, let, me, let me move on a little bit further, and I'll try to wrap this up as quickly as I can here. Um, above all, Paul says, and, and he says this because faith is the catalyst which brings God's truth to life within our lives. What is faith? Faith is believing God, obviously, right? That's what it really is. It's believing God. And belief, of course, as we will look at in the future. By definition, in Scripture, it is literally entrusting one's, totally entrusting one's spiritual well being to Christ. And so faith is that which brings to life the truth of God within our lives. So it is a catalyst in that sense, we could say. Faith is the means provided by God by which we believe God. In other words, belief as biblically defined again, is to totally entrust our spiritual well-being to him. Now, again, the imagery of the shield. When one took that shield, hunkered down behind that shield, he was totally entrusting his existence, his life, his well-being to the sufficiency and trustworthiness of the shield behind which he stood. Throw this out concerning that too. We probably won't get any further. We just don't, we won't have time. But let me let me say this because this is important also. Is the shield sufficient? Do you believe that the soldier who took the shield and again hunkered down behind the shield and had no no doubt soaked that shield so that when the fiery darts hit the shield, it would quench the fire of the dart itself and not allow the dart to penetrate the shield but it would protect the soldier who was behind the shield. Do you believe that soldier was totally trusting in that shield to be sufficient? Of course he was. but Let me ask you something. If he had never been trained how to the shield if he had never been trained how to plant the shield, if he'd never been trained how to hunker down behind the shield, if he never bit picked up the shield, and it's just laying on the ground. Is it still sufficient? Yes. But is it going to do him any good? No. Here's what I'm saying to you. The faith. Notice what Jude says. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Jude is saying the faith is a once-for-all deliverance to the saints. And he says this is trustworthy. This is this is defensible and this is that which we can we can totally commit ourselves to it's proven but hear me if we're not personally engaging the faith it is not it has nothing to do with the insufficiency of the faith it has to do with our lack of commitment and our lack of understanding and our lack of application of ourselves to this that has been delivered unto us. So this is very personal, obviously. But I'm saying to you, and I'll just wrap up here for the sake of time. We're not really finished with this, but for the sake of time. We may come back, we may not, we'll see, to this portion. But let me say this to you. The faith is sufficient. Above all, taking the shield of faith, Paul said, right? Earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The faith is absolutely sufficient. But the question is, how many believers today understand or trust and and, and rest in the sufficiency of the faith to conquer all attacks of the enemy? And how many know how to properly use the faith in such a manner to be able to do so? That's what Jude is saying here. Hey, I, 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 it's necessary. I find it necessary that I write it to you concerning the importance, the, the urgency for you to, to personally engage and personally defend and personally acknowledge the exclusivity of this faith that has been once delivered. Everyone's always looking. Isn't it interesting? Always looking for something new. Always looking for something more. Always looking for something relevant. Listen, there is nothing more relevant than faith in Jesus Christ. There is nothing more relevant than the faith itself. Nothing. You know why? Because just as Israel was in the Old Testament, so we are today. Is it not true? Just like Adam was in the garden, so we are today. men continue to reveal the truth of what they are and who they are, but the faith stands all sufficient and forever will be and so we ought to trust and rest wholly in the faith. And we should be as Paul said, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. The faith is under constant attack. And you know what's happening? People don't have don't rest and trust in the faith and they're always trying to come up with something else and able to, in an effort to combat the attacks against the faith itself. Whenever we must understand, it is the faith that is the answer to the attacks. That's what Paul is saying, and that's what we must understand. So we'll get into this further maybe, and at least somewhat, and then get into what is the faith. What does this actually mean, and what is the exclusivity of the faith? If there's one faith, which there is, what is that faith? What does this mean? What is the definition of this as stated by Jude and by other writers within the New Testament?